All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, go ahead and turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 5 today. We've been, and we started a series in Mark uh, in the fall, so those sermons are online, most of them are, majority of them are, so if you want to catch up, those are there for you. We also have a podcast, it's a podcast now. So it's, it's a big, t- I know, I'm excited about that. Um, so if you, if you need to listen to it, those things are made available to you on our website, so check those out. I want to say too, in your worship guide, the title is wrong, I changed that this morning. So the title of today's sermon is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, after the hymn that we'll sing to close out, but I thought that was more appropriate than what I had on there, so... So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Let me read those for us. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, open our ears to hear the truth of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most uh, striking features about the Gospel of Mark, you may have already, already seen this, is the amount of space that he devotes to miracles. So, including the the text that we just read today in in chapter 5, we've already seen seven miracles that Jesus has performed in only five, or four and a half, I should say, four and a half short chapters. 
So that's a lot of space. And so remember, in Mark's writing, when Mark gives uh, attention to something uh, over and over again, we want to kind of hone in and say, Mark, why are you doing that? Why are you, why are you showing us that uh, in, in, in this way in your gospel? So just as a comparison, in Matthew's gospel, a miracle doesn't, uh, doesn't show up until chapter 8 of Matthew's, Matthew's gospel. And then in Luke's gospel, which is one of the, the most detailed gospel accounts, a miracle does not appear until chapter 5. And then in John's gospel, he mentions Jesus' first miracle really early on in chapter 2, but then you don't see another miracle in John's gospel until chapter 4. Mark has already given us seven accounts of miracles. So why does he give so much attention to these things? And for that answer, we have to look at the broader context of Mark's gospel. That has to be in in our view in order for us to understand that. Because remember, one of the main themes that Mark is trying to communicate to his audience is the kingdom of God. The reality of the kingdom of God. So remember what Jesus announces in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 right at the very beginning of the gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this is what carries through the rest of Mark's gospel. It's the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. So this reminds us that Jesus' miracles are not wonders to be marveled at. They're not some kind of circus act that uh, Jesus was doing to strum up popularity for himself. No, these were manifestations of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God had come in Christ. These were signs of God's grace to the world. Signs that a new kingdom was being established on earth as it was in heaven. So this is why not all of Jesus' miracles were accepted. So think about this. These miracles should have been uh, the, the, the most proof that anybody during this time ever needed to know that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. You would think that that would be it. You're seeing all of these wonderful things happen. You're seeing your friends and your family members being like truly healed of diseases, not the fake stuff that we see on TV nowadays, but truly being healed of diseases and demons being cast out of them. You would think that would be enough, but it's not. Later on in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 8, we see that the, the religious leaders the ones who should know better because they know their Bible well, demand a sign from Jesus. They still want a sign to know whether he is truly from God, they say. And they want a sign. Yet Mark knew that by communicating these miracles, he was communicating the counter-cultural reality of the kingdom of God. And it's something that we all need to see. So the miracle stories of Jesus are broken up into two categories. So you have uh, nature miracles. So we saw one of those in the text from last week where Jesus 
calms the storm. So you have those types of miracles. And then you have healing miracles. And with the healing miracles, these are broken up into two subcategories. So you have restorations, so people being healed of sickness and being brought back from the dead, those types of miracles. And then you have exorcisms, and they're their own category. So this second subcategory of Jesus' miracles is exactly what we see happening in our text this morning. So if you were to do a quick Google search of exorcisms, um, it will show you that there is a great deal of interest in demon possession in our world. That has not gone away. So uh, a lot of it, I think, too many movies and TV shows have been uh, geared around demon possession. So you had uh, the the movie The Exorcist uh, back in the 70s, early 80s. All on, on up until now, there's a new series out on one of the main networks called simply called Evil, which is just dealing with uh, demon possession and these unexplained kind of things that happen. But I came across two uh, separate articles that were written in the past few years that, that's both, that separately pointed out the same idea about demon possession. And these were not articles written on Christianity Today or any church or denomination website. One was from the Atlantic and the other was from the Washington Post. And the subtitle of the Atlantic article, which was written in 2018, explains this for us. Explains this, this idea of curiosity that we still have with demon possession. It says, priests are fielding more requests than ever for help with demonic possession. So priests are being over, Catholic priests are being overwhelmed with phone calls and emails uh, about people who are supposedly possessed by demons. And some of those are legitimate. And a centuries-old practice is finding new footing in the modern world. Now, both writers separately default to the spiritual reality. And they don't do this because they feel like they have to in order to write a, a catchy article that people are going to want to click on when they, when they Google this. It, the, the reason why they default to the spiritual reality is because they have no other answer for what is happening in people's lives who are possessed by demons. The, their only response is to say that something supernatural is happening in this person. And these are, these are, these are, these are psychologists and psychiatrists, people who, who are professionals with the brain and interacting with these people. They've seen it all. And they come to these cases and they're dumbfounded. And the only thing that they can do is point to the spiritual reality. C.S. Lewis writes in the preface of, the, of his book, The Screwtape Letters, about our interests in demons and the devil. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, referring to the demons are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So the most recent survey found that 
more than half of all Americans, about 57%, believe in the existence of the devil. And then a slight majority believe in possession by evil spirits. It's a very recent study as well. So I'm sure for a lot of folks, they've gotten their ideas from the culture's personification of demons and devils uh, in movies and TV shows. But for the Christian, for the church of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that the devil and his demons are not only real, but fierce enemies of the church. That's why I had our, our scripture reading be uh, Revelation 12, because that, that tells us the, the, the story in a, in a quick way of, of Satan's uh, kind of rise to power. And that, that dragon that, that he's talking about there is Satan, who took a third of the angels of heaven with him when he fell, when he was cast down out of heaven by God. The devil and demons are real. And our text explains that to us. So I want us to look at the text uh, today, looking at the three men that we see in the text. So these are, these are not in your worship. These made it to the printer before I got to, um, to put the points in, but I'll give you the three points here. The first man is the strong man. The second man is the stronger man. And then the third man is the transformed man. The strong man, the stronger man, and the transformed man. So first, the strong man. Look at verses 1 through 5. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So if you've been with us in this series, uh, you'll already know with the title of points one and two that I'm referring back to Mark chapter three. So in Mark chapter three, Jesus himself is accused of being the one who is demon-possessed, if you remember that. And so Jesus goes on to tell a parable, to teach his audience the folly of this particular accusation. And so in telling this parable, Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man. And he's right in doing this. Satan is strong. He's a powerful Enemy. That's why he's called the king of this world. Jesus says in John 10.10 that Satan has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he does that. And in 1 Peter 5.10, Peter warns us, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Someone to kill, someone to destroy. So he is not to be taken lightly or to be treated in some goofy manner like we often do. He is a real enemy to the church. So look at the havoc that he's causing this man in our text. 
Mark describes for us in detail what Satan is doing to this one created in God's image. So we see as soon as Jesus and his disciples reach the other side of the sea into this particular area of the country, they're immediately, Mark says, met by this demon-possessed man. So here is a man that is isolated from his community, isolated from his family and friends, and he is now living amongst the dead. And what that signifies is that the townspeople, the people of this country, just consider this man, he's so far gone with this demon possession that he is dead to us. He's dead to us. He's uncontrollable. And the only reason that we know that he's uncontrollable is because Mark tells us that no one could bind him. Now, at this particular instance, I'm certain, pretty certain, that uh, they're not seeing the townspeople trying to bind him. So you've got to think, like, well, how does Mark know that? How does, how does Peter know to tell Mark that? And the only thing that I could think of is that you have to imagine how often the people of this country probably came out of fear for their family and friends and neighbors to come and shackle this man, to try to get him under control. They probably did it over and over again. I'm sure there was some sort of plan in place that people were like, who's going out to the, to the crazy guy in, in, the, in the graveyard today? Who's going to try to bind him? What else can we do? So you can imagine that there were broken chains and shackles just all over the place. That when they come in they, and, and shackle him up for probably a second, he just rips them off and just throws them everywhere. And so Jesus and his disciples are looking at this in this graveyard with this man who's screaming at the top of his lungs and chains and shackles everywhere. So no one had the strength to subdue him. No one could do anything for this man. So night and day he is tormented. Night and day, he is crying out. Night and day, he's cutting himself with stones. So at this moment, Satan has him. That's what possession means. So you have something. Satan possesses this man. So let me just state this clearly, because I know this comes up often, and some of you may have this question floating in your brain that if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have repented of your sins and believed the gospel, let me just tell you, you cannot be possessed by a demon. Okay? You cannot be possessed. It's impossible. The Bible says that, that you are kept in the hand of God and no one can pluck you out. No one. Let me just add a but here. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you're not vulnerable to the devices of Satan. Satan will tempt you. Satan will come up against you. I think in certain uh, translations of the Bible, it says that that Satan will buffet you, which, which literally means to punch you in the face. He'll do that. God will even allow it at times. He did it in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Uh, Paul says, 
so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And then again, just to remind you of 1 Peter 5, that Satan is a roaring lion, and his um, attacking is coming at the church. That's what he's doing. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, And I think a lot of times as believers, we fall into this trap where we think that the culture is at war with us. It's not. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, God's Word tells us, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our real battle is unseen. But we need to begin to acknowledge that reality because it's there. So we wrestle against these these, uh, these authorities and cosmic powers, um, but we are not possessed by them. They don't have us. And the only reason that is, is because the church overcomes Satan by the blood of the cross. So we make this our daily prayer every single week. We recite this in the Lord's prayer together. Maybe you think, like, why do we say the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday? This gets kind of monotonous and boring. Why do we do that? It's because we continue to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. And one of the, one of the points in that prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations, deliver us from the evil one. It's a daily prayer. So to be demon-possessed is to be outside of Christ. So I have to say to my friends here today who may not yet know Jesus as their Savior, I just want to say you are in real danger. No matter how goofy you might think this idea of a devil and demons are, it is true, and you are in danger. And you are in danger because you find yourself outside of Christ at this moment. And you are one that is vulnerable to what we see happening to this man in Mark chapter 5. That could happen. And your only source of rescue is Jesus. That's it. It's the only way you're getting out of that. That's the only way that you are safe, is to be secure in Christ. Because while Satan may be the the strong man and have that kind of power, Jesus is the stronger man. Look at verses 6 through 13. Mark goes on and said, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. 
And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So in these verses, we uh, get a detailed dialogue of a, of a bizarre conversation between the demons who possess, who possess this man and Jesus. So in verses 6 and 7, the, the possessed man's reaction to Jesus, if you notice, is not to flee from Jesus. It doesn't run from Jesus, but it actually runs toward Jesus, if you notice to that. So it's almost as if this demon is posting up to Jesus to do battle. Because he knows that before him, in Christ, stands an enemy. Or you could say stands the enemy. The only one who can destroy them. And they know it. So much so that they are begging God, or begging Jesus not to kill them in the name of God. I adjure you by God to not torment us. So they know that they are a defeated enemy, but they continue to fight. And you notice this in the way in which they address Jesus. They come and immediately begin to speak Jesus' name. Now, lest you think that the uh, demon is having some conversion experience here, he is not. So during this time, to speak someone's name was an attempt to gain power over that particular person. So this is what these demons were doing. They were trying to seek to, to, to show that they had some sort of power over Jesus. But they don't. And so they scream his name even louder so to, to, to make this point even clearer. And they still have no power. Yet the, demon, the demons know who Jesus is, and they hate him. They hate him. So let me again point you back to Jesus' parable in in chapter 3 because in this parable, Jesus is establishing himself as the one in the parable who binds the strong man. Jesus says that a strong man has to be bound in order for his house to be plundered. So the strong man, again, is Satan. The stronger man is Jesus. And so we already know that in, in, in Mark chapter 1, that Jesus has already bound Satan. When Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness, he has bound Satan. And so everything after that fact is Jesus plundering Satan's house. And what we're seeing happen here in, in Mark chapter 5 is this plundering. Jesus is doing this. He is rescuing his creation from darkness. Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall. Jesus is making known his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So in verse 4, Mark told us that no one, no one could subdue this man. Which means no one had the strength to stop Satan's destructive power. No one. 
It's only in and through Christ that Satan is defeated. Not a crucifix, not holy water, but Jesus. So this man in our text who was possessed needed someone outside himself, someone stronger than Satan to work a supernatural work to truly free him. So we don't have this ability in and of ourselves. It's only through the indwelling Spirit of God that we have the power to resist the devil. We cannot do that on our own strength. So again, let me emphasize this. If you don't have the Spirit of God, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you cannot resist the devil. And the Bible says that you are an enemy of God and that Satan is your master. Jesus, the stronger man, must work this work in you in order for you to be free and to be at peace. So now in verses 8 through 13, Jesus is, it's Jesus' turn to talk and ask the questions. And one of the first questions that he asked in verse 9 Uh, is to ask the demon his name, to show this demon who has the real power in the room, to which the demon responds, uh, our name is Legion. So this this is the attempt of a defeated enemy trying to go down swinging, you could say. Now, in a Roman army, uh, a legion of men was about 6,000 soldiers. So that's a lot. Now, we don't know if this man had 6,000 demons in him. Um, But what we do know is that this demon was very powerful. And this is what this demon is trying to communicate, is that he has strength over this man, and he is not going to give him up that easily. But as we see, Jesus easily defeats him. And it's Jesus who casts all of these demons out and destroys them. And then he introduces us to our last man in the text, a transformed man in verses 14 through 20. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, I don't know if you've observed this, maybe in your Bible reading you've seen this, or or just through the sermons every Sunday, but whenever people encounter the living God, uh, one of two responses take place. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. One of two responses. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul describes it to the Corinthians like this. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
You see it in the text here. The, the, the townspeople look at what Jesus has done, that he has just essentially ruined their livelihood by sending these demons into these 2,000 pigs and sends them into the sea to drown. They go off and, and tell in their own way what Jesus is doing, and they come back and they beg him to leave. Foolishness. And then you have this demon-possessed man who is nothing but thankful. He recognizes the power of God. And then you have Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 2. He describes himself and his companions to the Corinthian church in this way. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So what Paul is saying is we smell like Jesus. We smell like Jesus. And to those who are perishing, that smell is a fragrance of death to death. It is a stench. It is unbearable. To others who believe, it's a fragrance from life to life. It's a sweet aroma. So acceptance or rejection is what you see. And rejection of the gospel is not just someone shouting expletives at you and, uh, and giving you the finger. As, much, as easy as that would be, so you would just kind of know that somebody was just, all right, they don't want to hear the truth of the gospel. I get it. Thanks. No, rejections include, I think, more often than not, indifference. So you have those who say to you, that's okay for you. But that's, that's not where I'm at right now. I, I'm good. I'm good. Or it includes those who, are, who may be very nice people, salt of the earth type people, that, like we like to say in the South. People who are just genuine, genuine and real and kind. You may be related to these people. But it includes those who trust in their niceness. And those who trust in their uh, so-called moral prowess to get them by in life. So we see this same pattern in our text. Everyone here witnesses the same exact scene, yet we are still given two very different reactions. And the reason being for this, because you think, like, they just saw this amazing miracle take place before them. They saw this man who they know, who has been possessed by demons for for however long, be freed from demons in an instant. And they still react in the way that they react. And it's because they see Jesus' power differently. So in verse 15, so radical was this man's transformation that the townspeople are left afraid. They're terrified. So like the sea in chapter 4, like we looked at last week, one second the sea is raging. It's this storm that is, that is threatening to kill the disciples. And then the next minute, it's calm. And Jesus' own disciples, his, his own followers are left terrified. And all they can say is, who is this man that can calm the sea and the wind? Well, the same has just happened to this demon-possessed man. 
One second, he's raging, uncontrollable, terrifying. The next, he's calm. Mark tells us he is fully dressed, fully clothed, and in his right mind. And the townspeople are left terrified. Because they too have just come face to face with the reality of the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. So they have just witnessed a power greater than that of Satan, and the only thing they know to do is to beg Jesus to leave them. Just just leave our presence. This is too much for us. So in contrast, the former demoniac, the former demon-possessed man, begs to go with Jesus. Take me with you. I want to be with you always. So it's no accident that Mark uses the word beg three times here in our text, if you caught that. In verse 10, he says, the demons beg Jesus not to destroy him. And then in verse 17, the townspeople beg Jesus to leave them. And then in verse 18, the former demoniac begs Jesus to be with him. So this man who was formerly tormented by the devil is teaching us the only appropriate response to Jesus' transforming power. Now, we notice at this time Jesus does not allow the man to go with him. He has a greater work for him to do, a specific mission. In verse 19, Jesus says to this man, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is one of the first times that after a miracle is performed, that Jesus allows someone to go and tell others about him. And he says, go and tell your friends exactly what has happened to you. Go and tell your friends exactly who I am and what is happening with me on this earth. Go and tell the Lord's goodness and the Lord's mercy. Go and tell that the kingdom has come in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, let me, this is a good point for me to ask you. Does the reality of Jesus' transforming work in your life propel you to go and tell? Does it do that? And you might be tempted to say, well, I've, I've never, I've, I haven't been delivered from a demon I don't have a really exciting story to go and tell, but I'll just remind you that you have been delivered from the exact same darkness as this demon-possessed man has been delivered from. It's no different. He wasn't in a different dimension of darkness because he was possessed. He's in the same darkness as you were. You've been transformed by Jesus in the exact same way. So go to your home and go to your places of vocation this week and tell them of how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy to you. Now some of you may need to lead with asking forgiveness of your co-workers because you have not been a good witness for Jesus 
And that might, that might be a good open door, a good open opportunity for you to begin to share the gospel with them. Others of you, or I think all of us, in some way, shape, or form, may need to begin to think strategically about how you can go about sharing the gospel with those that you are in contact with, sometimes more than you are with your families. God has placed you in your vocation. And he expects us to go and tell others about the mercy that we have found in Christ. So go and tell. Well, the hymn that we'll sing here in just a minute, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not superstitious in any way, shape, or form because that would just tell you to leave the church now if I said I was. But, um, but I do know that Glenn asked me this week, hey, is there any songs that you would li- like us to sing that go along with the message? I said, could you do A Mighty Fortress is Our God? And he had already chosen that song. So I was like, that's God's providence, man. That's what we need to sing this week. But the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, if you didn't know, is written by Martin Luther, the great reformer. And Martin Luther, Luther wrote this during the Reformation. It's a, it's a hymn based on Psalm 46. And it was known as the battle hymn of the Reformation. It was a song that reminded the church that their battle was not against flesh and blood, but their battle was against the spiritual forces of this world. And so Luther was biblically honest about the devil's power. He didn't hold back. And so in the first verse he writes, For still our ancient foe, the devil, the great dragon, as Revelation 12 calls him, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. There is no one more powerful than the devil on this earth. He has great power. So Luther was reminding the church during the Reformation that the, vor- the forces of evil were very real and very present. And the only rescue could come from one otherworldly source. And so this hymn still, it reminds us that while the forces of evil are still very real, while Satan still does buffet us uh, and, and and brings his sufferings upon the church, our God is not thwarted. His plans are never frustrated for you. Because as Luther writes in his final verse here, he says, did we in our own strength confide? Asking a question here. If we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that the battle that we fight is not one that we fight on our own. It's not one that you just kind of toss us into and just hope for the best, but that is, it's a battle that you have armed us with, the armor of God through Christ. That when we go into battle, we do not go alone. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that is aware of 
the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work against us and that we would go in armed with with your word, that we would go in protected by the grace and mercy that you give to us in Christ every single day, God, that we would uh, be reminded that you are not thwarted. That Satan, although real and very powerful, is a defeated enemy. God, I pray for those here who may not yet know you. God, I pray that they would understand the danger that they are currently in and that they would come to faith in Christ today. God, I pray that you would uh, allow all of us to just understand the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that you call us uh, to go and tell, to go and tell others of the mercy that we have received from you in Christ. Help us to be faithful in that way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.